Welcome to Getting Credit, a podcast focusing on financial markets, corporate credit, and timely insights from Pacific Funds. Here's your guest host, Matt Murphy, Senior Client Portfolio Manager. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. Today, we're talking energy, the sector of the global economy that's been generating so many headlines lately. Our guest is John Brueggemann, a Senior Analyst for Pacific Asset Management, Sub-Advisor for the Pacific Funds Fixed Income Funds. John's been with Pacific Asset Management for nine years and focuses on analyzing energy names across the corporate credit structure. John, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in, John. The energy markets have had an interesting few years. Care to give us a bird's eye view of what's affecting global energy markets right now? Certainly. I would characterize what we're seeing today as something that's been years in the making when you think about the structural underinvestment in traditional oil and gas production over the last several years, particularly in the OPEC-related region, is translating to higher prices. You look at crude oil, nearly 120 a barrel, and natural gas at 931, prices we haven't seen in many, many years. But again, it's something that's been years in the making, given the structural underinvestment. When we think about gas prices, we saw at the pump for U.S. consumers for many years was basically subsidized uh, U.S. shale investors and basically those companies burning through cash flow at a um, really high rate um, and basically flooding the market with supply. Deloitte did a study on this that U.S. shale firms invested $1.1 trillion in CapEx from 2010 to 2019 while generating negative $300 billion in cash flow. So you look at the U.S. shale industry basically subsidized lower gas prices at the pump. And now that those companies are no longer growing production and we're trying to keep a flat production profile and return all the cash flow to shareholders to get interest in investing in the sector again, you know, that's why we're seeing higher prices at the pump and why we think prices are going to be higher for longer. Right. As consumers, John, your answer was kind of leading right into this next question for me. You know, we're all being affected. Higher prices at the pump and natural gas prices increasing for our homes. Uh, what do you see as the media's take versus an analyst like you and what you see in your research process? Yeah, it's interesting. Every day there's a new article or a headline about how consumers are bring, being gouged at the pump by big oil but it's economics 101 until there's a supply response to meet the higher prices or demand is destructed, prices are just going to be higher for longer. And there's not been a supply response from U.S. shale. OPEC plus continues to underperform their quotas. I think in the month of April, they were underperforming their quotas by over a, a million barrels a day. And then obviously with the war in Ukraine and, and Europe trying to wean themselves off Russian uh, oil and gas, putting even more pressure on the market. Europe and Ukraine, that was going to be my next question. How is the conflict in Eastern Europe affecting the world energy markets right now? Can you elaborate on what you just said there? It's a really big deal, Matt. Europe, for instance, imports 40% of their natural gas from Russia and not really being a supply response to higher natural gas prices, right? They're trying to figure out where to source to displace Russia. So it's putting in incredible upward pressure on, on all commodity prices, really. And that's not a, a transition that can occur overnight, right? And you're seeing the ramifications, I think, globally from the war. Power prices, you know, in Europe are five times the normal average because they don't have the ability to, to source the, the baseload natural gas and coal that they need 
to power their their grid. It's been a real crisis. So you saw in the winter, you know, in Europe, it was too cost prohibitive to manufacture fertilizer. And then you ended up seeing that translate into empty shelves in the grocery store. They were unable to produce the food required to stock the shelves because it was too expensive to manufacture fertilizer. And the commodity crisis is, is really rearing its ugly head in all facets of modern day life. Energy security is becoming a real threat, and it's to the point where it's, it's a matter of not running out of commodities, not how high the price is. It's a, a dynamic, again, that's going to continue, I think, for some time until there's a supply response from either OPEC or, or U.S. shale. And, you know, like I said earlier, the U.S. is not going to return to the high growth years that we saw in 2010 to 2015 where domestic oil production doubled, right? It's shareholders are demanding a return on their investment and ESG-related risks are driving capital flight out of the sector after investors have been burned over and over again, given the history of negative returns in the sector. So I think the, the, the commodity shortages that you're seeing globally are only intensifying because of the invasion by Russia into Ukraine, and we don't see any easing of those pressures over the near to intermediate term. Let's switch gears a little bit, talk about coal fire and the alternative use of natural gas, among other resources, with the goal of lowering emissions. What's happening now? What will be happening in three to five years and beyond? When you think about the emission reduction um, opportunity by converting coal to natural gas power generation, globally speaking, it's basically the equivalent of electrifying every U.S. passenger vehicle powering every home in America with rooftop solar and backup battery packs and adding 54,000 industrial scale windmills, which would double the U.S. wind capacity, all those combined. The decarbonization opportunity presented by converting coal to natural gas represents, I think, the biggest opportunity we have to meet the emissions targets that are, that are being discussed. And, and there's a lot of discussion about whether these, these targets in net zero is even attainable. A lot of experts would argue that a lot of the uh, targets have unrealistic solar and wind adoption scenarios, especially as the International Energy Agency has propositioned. And you already see the this past winter, you already see the, how unreliable the grid was this past winter when they didn't have enough hydrocarbon baseload power generation. And you know the outages have never been greater uh, than we're seeing, and that's domestic, that's in Europe. So we have to ask ourselves, are these targets really attainable and reliable? Follow up on that subject for you, John. How possible is it that we can completely eliminate coal and oil as sources of energy? I don't really think that's necessarily feasible. I think, again, we can convert a, a bunch of the, the world's coal plants to natural gas, but its renewable sources are not reliable sources of baseload power. So you're not going to get all the emissions out of just global power generation, right? A lot of those targets seem far-fetched to say the least. And, and also when you think about replacing fossil fuels, well, you have to replace them with metals. And you look at the supply demand models for, let's just isolate lithium, for instance, lithium being the, the metal that makes the batteries for electric vehicles. A lot of forecasters estimate that we would have to build 20 of the world's biggest lithium mines just to meet the 2030 aspirational carbon reduction targets, like in the Paris Accord, for instance. And, you know, it takes 15 years, basically, for a, a new mine to come online. 
just when you think about the supply base of of metals to support these these aspirational targets, there's just not enough supply, frankly, in all metals, copper, lithium, et cetera. So it brings in a question is, is this really possible, right? Because you have to replace the fossil fuels with, with the metals and you have enough metals, et cetera. So can you give me a few examples, John, of how oil is used outside of what we all know? Yeah, that's an interesting point, Matt, that I don't think necessarily gets a lot of talking about in, in the press just how big a part of everyday life oil and gas plays. You think about cell phones, food packaging, computer parts, all of this is originally able to be manufactured because of crude oil and, and ultimately into those hard plastics that go into those devices, into making a car. For example, I think it's interesting, you think about everyday life and examples of things that maybe it doesn't get talked about in the press about you know where a barrel of oil is going, but you think about Making a car, a laptop, computer, a cell phone, a barrel of oil is going into manufacturing all those all those goods, the hard plastics, et cetera, that go into those devices. That's just not something that most people know. Yeah, that that is very interesting. Uh, I had no idea myself about what was being used in terms of or what needed to be used in terms of oil in those everyday products outside of, I thought it just filled up my car. Okay, John, one final question. Given our discussion today, where do you see the opportunities in the energy sector? Yes, Matt, I think the most interesting opportunities we are currently seeing in the markets are available in natural gas-based exploration and production companies uh, is we think that natural gas prices are going to be higher for longer given it's viewed as a, a bridge transition fuel like we've been talking about. And, you know, all the related infrastructure, midstream pipelines that goes into to moving those molecules, those are some of the most attractive opportunities that we're, we're currently seeing. And, and, you know, when you think about the opportunity overall, and, you know, earlier we were talking about Europe weaning them, themselves off Russian natural gas. Well, where are they going to source that gas from? U.S. LNG or liquefied natural gas capacity is looking to double in the next five years as we look to help support Europe weaning them, themselves off natural gas. And so there's a lot of opportunities that we are finding in the, in the markets with credits levered to this kind of thesis. Thanks, John. We really appreciate your insights today. Thanks for having me, Matt. And that wraps up our episode on today's energy sector. Thanks for joining us. And we're looking forward to bringing you another edition of Analyze This next month. The views in this commentary are as of the date recorded and are presented for informational purposes only. These views should not be construed as investment advice, an endorsement of any security mutual fund, sector, or index, or to predict performance of any investment. The opinions expressed herein are subject to change without notice, as market and other conditions warrant. Any performance data quoted represents past performance, which does not guarantee future results. Any forward-looking statements are not guaranteed. All material is compiled from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. All third-party trademarks referenced belong to respective owners. Pacific Funds and Pacific Asset Management, LLC, are registered service marks of Pacific Life Insurance Company. Pacific Life Insurance Company is the administrator for Pacific Funds. It is not a fiduciary and therefore does not give advice or make recommendations regarding insurance or investment profit.